Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone. Over these last several episodes, we've been covering the hot topic of retail media networks and the promise they hold in helping retailers and brands become more customer-centric. There's a lot of new things to learn about retail media networks as this space is changing almost every day. But one thing I know for certain, it is how connected the digital shelf is to effective retail media network performance. Sometimes the digital shelf is seen as a tick box, set it up, move on to something else. But in fact, getting your items set up properly and continually monitoring and optimizing them It's a job that's never really done. To talk about what it takes to get the digital shelf right, I have with me today an expert in this area, Eric Howerton, founder and chief development officer of White Spider. Welcome, Eric, to the program. Thanks, Andy. It's an honor to be here. Well, Eric, before I ask you about White Spider, tell me about your journey that led up to creating this new thing, White Spider. Then we'll get into the White Spider offer. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting one. So uh, my uh, studies and in school or photojournalism. And I didn't even really realize that I wanted to do that until uh, one day I was out uh, when I was a whitewater raft guide in college in the summertime, right? Yeah. Did a cool summer job. This was back when the internet was just starting. There's actually right. a, a, a website called coolsummerjobs.com. Oh, nice. And I found this whitewater rafting gig. And so I'll go out there, really love nature. And I was like, I would love to go around and take pictures of waterfalls for the rest of my life. Okay. Yeah. Now I found out that doesn't make much money. Yeah. Yeah. Very right? cool though. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely cool. You get it. And so, uh, and then I started, as I started studying photojournalism, mm-hmm. I started really appreciating, you know, content, writing, telling a story, interviewing the who, what, when, where, and why, and how. And it was just invigorating to me that I, you know, as a human, we have a power yep. to tell stories and to, and to do that well. And so I applied the outdoor enthusiasm to that education and I wanted to start an outdoor magazine for Arkansas called Get Out Magazine. Okay. And that's whenever I kind of moved to Northwest Arkansas from Arkansas State University. Now, what year is this about? Uh, around 2000. Okay. Yeah, and so I moved over to Fayetteville to work with the Northwest Arkansas uh, Times as a photographer. Right. But really my ambition was was to start this outdoor magazine because of the Ozark Mountains, right? Got I mean, it. it's just paradise around yeah. here. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. Thought, what better place to start an outdoor magazine? And then I actually started that at age 22, age 22 when nice. I started my own magazine. You know how great the magazine publishing business is, Andy. <laughs> well, Fantastic. I've been right? there a little bit. It can yeah. be quite a business model challenge. For sure it was. <laughs> and uh, so started that up. 22, didn't really know what I was doing with business. Uh, uh, didn't sell as many ads, but I did produce a really excellent publication. Yeah, I, I bet you did. Yeah, it was really yeah. It was great. as ahead of its time. And we were talking about mountain biking before it was cool in Northwest Arkansas. So fast forward that journey that kind of pulled me into helping other publishers with their magazines and their desktop publishing. And that pulled me into more of the photography and the creative design, the print design, high-end print design. And then, of course, digital really started becoming stronger. 
And yeah. I got uh, some opportunities to do some web development. That's when I met my co-founder with White Spider. Uh, he was actually studying his, uh, at the uh, University of Arkansas, earning his mm. master's in pr- uh, computer science. And we started White Spider to be an e-commerce agency. Uh, yeah. You know, and we actually, White comes from White Hat Technology Online. Spiders okay. came from the Google crawlers, the yeah. search engine. That spiders. makes sense. Yeah. And so we went, we set out to do uh, search engine optimization the right way and helped a lot of uh, regional businesses with their national e-commerce stores. And then along the way somewhere we had somebody, we were always trying to get into Walmart, um, but we were bumping up against some of these strong shopper marketing agencies that were around here. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, in-store was all the hit, It was right? all in-store, right? It was all in-store, but uh, we saw the digital you know, that just this digital shopping behavior really taking off. And, uh, you know, no one really believed it at the time because in-store was so strong. Um, and then, but eventually, you know, as Walmart developed their connected content partner program, we were happy to be at the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, knew it A to Z. And so we set out to help suppliers win at Walmart online. Well, you know, if you would have given me a hundred guesses on your background, I never would have picked photojournalism. Yeah. Uh, but it all makes sense. It you does. Know, the, the digital storytelling and mm-hmm. how that evolved and how the industry evolved over time mm-hmm. uh, makes a lot of sense that you landed in this space you're in right now. So well done. Thanks, man. I, you know, and I, I agree. Like I, you know, look back at journalism. I'm like, you know, I really appreciate it more and more, specifically because you just learn how to ask questions at the root of that. And then even better is, I mean, we started applying it to the product detail page, right? Which is where we work on Walmart. You know, the headline, the title. Yeah. How to write a great headline. Then how to write the bullet points. How to write this description with the lead sentence that answer all the questions. You know, it just really helps you. That studying helps you understand readers, user experience, how, you know, images impact, how to tell story through images, you know, as, you know, within shop marketing, how do we tell that picture digitally, you know, so that we can communicate the value of the brand and the items to the customer. Well, I bet if you go back, I don't know how many years, maybe five or six, maybe not that long ago, most item description type brand information seemed really technical. And I dealt with this even in putting out shelf labels in store and how they get concatenated in the text. Mm -hmm. And it felt the whole environment felt very product description from a matter of fact, technical side. But you have been working to take it to a a more creative storytelling space, which feels more natural from a consumer interaction mm-hmm. or probably what you would expect to find. And mm-hmm. do you still get into that challenge or has everybody kind of caught on that you've got some brands, probably brand manager wants 15 different, you right. know, everything you could possibly think about for the brand to be on the page mm-hmm. and probably others that are looking more technical. So how do you bring it to a more creative consumer facing space you know Andy, it's been interesting over the years uh watching the industry evolve right and specifically at walmart it's funny like a lot of times brands really understand it on amazon like it makes complete sense but the second you get on walmart like it dissipates like the that knowledge of understanding the product detail page just isn't present and i think that that's a lot of the split between you know internally structures at the brands uh but even still like the right type of imagery and how you're telling that product story. You know, you got to really be able to articulate that with that uh, opening the box, showing the right. content. You can actually go further than you can in store if That's you do right. it correctly. Same thing with the descriptions too. You know, how do you write that content so that it's grabbing that attention very quickly? Cause you only have a split second to keep their attention as you know. Right. 
But then how do you tell that story even deeper? Because a lot of times, uh, you know, shoppers might be in the store looking at an item. They go online to learn more about it. And so you have to be very thorough at the same time. I bet many people don't think about the fact that they're on the item page, but might be standing in front of the shelf. Absolutely. Happens all the time. You know, and, uh, and, you know, Walmart just released some data not too long ago about just the impact of that. They're like saying 60% or more shoppers are actually mm-hmm. doing that going online before they're purchasing in the, in the store. In the store. Yeah. You know, Eric, I guess I'm, I'm going to imply here and make an assumption because you're saying your focus on Walmart pretty much for White Spider. Mm-hmm. That assumes to, for me that uh, each retailer might be different. Yes. Otherwise, you might, you know, you could be, if it's all the same, why not all the retailer uh, sites and e-commerce platforms? But it sounds like to me, you know, explain to me what are some of the differences and why, yeah. uh, why they are so different perhaps. So I'll give you... Two of the fundamental reasons. Number one, and even kind of before this, I guess the digital shopping really kind of took place more of the omni-channel approach. Number one, the retailers are competing for search within Google. Okay. And so that discoverability, if you have, if, if I have an item page on Amazon and I take that same content, replicate that on Walmart or Target or wherever, the first usually wins in SEO. So if I've already got that page live on Amazon first, the Google bots are going in and indexing that saying, Hey, that's this page. Right. And then they see that duplication, that mirroring effect. It's going to keep that Amazon as the number one. And it's just going to kind of duplicate down the chain. And it's, and it's also going to look at the other content as not original content. Okay. So it's actually getting dinged down even further than the organic results. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you're a major brand at Walmart, right. When let's say that, you know, selling laundry detergent at mm-hmm. Walmart and it's by far my biggest account in store and you know really on in store but yet all the while my when you do the Google search my laundry detergent on Amazon's popping up that's not a very good balance there I yeah mean, you're, you're I kind see. of in and so you I go see. back and you have to explain to your relationship at right. the merchant at Walmart why you're not showing up and driving new eyeballs to Walmart how many people you think know this? Because this is a really important yeah. detail that could affect a lot of results. I mean, do you still get into uh, this being a black box oh, yeah. area in, in the yeah. CPG world? Yeah, I do. I think that whenever we get outside, so what is, what is happening, you mentioned retail media networks, right. right? I think within the retail media search or the retailer search box, we're starting to, we kind of started catching up on the brand side, right? I think right. we're probably about 70% there. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you where the 30% is lacking, right? In right. a second, but... But when you get into the Google space, it's a whole different ballgame. I think we're only about 20% there. There's so much opportunity as a brand to be the greatest partner in the world with Walmart yeah. by driving more market share to Walmart through Google search. And it's, and through the, the item page as well, you yep. know, the PDB page. And so I mentioned the intro that, you know, this retail media network explosion and the fact that some may see it as a step past, you know, got the, got the uh, digital shelf done. Uh, tick box, move on. Now it's retail media networks. But mm-hmm. from what I'm discovering, you know, these two worlds are forever dynamically yeah. interconnected. And if you want to get really great results from retail media networks and you have a poor item page or you've kind of left it sit there, mm-hmm. you're missing out on something that's really fundamental. So how are those two worlds, like how does the getting the PDP item page right and keeping it fresh and updated how important is that and how is it connected to retail media network effectiveness that's a great question so on one side there is 
if I'm spending and I'm investing in the, in the media side, driving discoverability to a product, once that shopper hits that product detail page, if they're not convinced and that story is not told, your, your, your conversion rate is drastically lowered. Any little bit that you can continue to improve on that PDP, the greater conversion rate you're going to get. A lot of people are always wanting to know conversion rates. I mean, my statement is it's just always had the best PDP in the world, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're dealing with an omni-channel retailer like Walmart, because that, that click and that drive might be occurring from an in-store environment or something to that effect that, or delivery environment. I mean, we don't know. And so when you're in there, they have to convert. You need to increase that. And so that's your prime opportunity. The advertisement drives the discoverability in the, in the search, but it's really that PDP that converts. And even the images that are laying on the shelf. The second part to it and the way that these worlds come together is kind of also the second piece to, um, in, in, into just understanding this whole space that we were talking about earlier is, oh, that you, you asked about the uniqueness of the content, right? So that there's two points to that. And the second point also applies to the second point of the retail media network, not to confuse you and and myself and everybody, (laughs) but there right there is, is the catalog, the taxonomy of the catalog. And so when you look at a retailer, Amazon versus target versus Walmart, anybody, every one of those retailers have different catalogs. There wasn't something back 20 years ago when the digital shopping started that there was some sort of great software that said, this is the proper way to set up your retailer e-commerce site. And even if there was, none of them would have used it because all of them are trying to be competitive against each other. So the taxonomy, the actual attribution models and the specifications needed to internally have the search algorithms work at Walmart are drastically different than that of Target or different than that of Amazon. Now, I bet we could all understand really quickly if I was to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm with Walmart, I just called Amazon and asked them for their search algorithm and their catalog to send it over so we could be universally synced for brands, that's never going to fly. No. Right? That's like right. asking, you know, it's like Pepsi asking Coca-Cola for their, exactly. their recipe. Yeah. Right? I get that. never going to happen, yeah. right? And yeah. so uh, that is another reason why that unique content, brands take a unique approach for every single retailer. And man, it is daunting. It is taxing. It is you know, frustrating and it's good, but it's going to never change. It's going to continue to escalate and get worse. Uh, well, get, especially if yeah. you think about what I've read, 600 retail media networks out there, obviously oh, yeah. a, a CPG can't handle 600 mm. retail networks, Mm-mm. but I think people have a hard time maybe understanding at times why it's so labor intensive. And I think you've picked a bit at that because uh, these are not just automated, all right. easy to populate. It takes time and thoughtfulness to understand what do I want to, what's my right assortment strategy, catalog strategy for this yep. retailer versus that retailer, and then the detail to set it up right. A lot of that is still a manual process, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And if you get the product description wrong, is it easy to change? No, it's not easy to change. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's harder. Than, yeah, it's harder than you'd think. And, and kind of to that point, what's pretty interesting, I know a lot of times we'll have Amazon suppliers that might be coming over to Walmart for their marketplace, they think it's going to be an easy transition and they just hit very, very low ceilings on their ability because the cattle, they can't advertise as well because the catalog and the taxonomy is different. And so to your point, when you're looking at these 600 networks where there's also 600 different catalogs yeah, and Great to point. have that same approach, because if you can make the catalog work well and you have the right attributions, your right shelf is set up, all the things that the algorithm needs to operate on that retailer, 
then you tap on that search, that mm -hmm. paid search. Or even if you do it in reverse order, it's still fine. But you're going to, those things work together to increase the effectiveness and efficiency of your spend at a retailer. It's interesting the uh, complexity of this and how you've been able to dive in on one network and really master it. Um, is your client base mostly brands or do you also have sometimes buyers? Because, you know, I've worked at Walmart and yeah. I would say there could be a chance there's a lot of opportunity to help them even absolutely. understand how this works. Oh, absolutely. Like uh, we talk to merchants all the time. We're always working with the global tech team, uh, working with the marketplace team as well at times. Uh, I mean, the content acquisition working with a lot of them to help them understand this complexity or not even understand, just get the work done. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a couple of departments where we, over the last two years, they've started recognizing the value of, at the end of the day, a merchant's job is to buy really great products and make sure that they're the right ones for the store and for .com and to sell through. It's hard to do whenever you're, the, the thing that's in the way are these content quality scores or these attributions or these style guides and the suppliers and brands aren't resourced on their side to handle it and right. take care of it. And so there's this gap there that no, that, that it's just difficult for anyone to fix, but we can help them. We're that bridge between them. And the same thing on the Walmart Connect side. A lot of times there might be brands or suppliers that are trying to invest in the media network. Walmart Connect would love for that to happen, but there's something going on that's not allowing the spin to be appropriately applied. And it'd be effective, right? And so we're helping that bridge as well, you know, and helping brands achieve a higher ROI. Well, and yeah. when you start to do that diagnostic, is it oftentimes the PDP is not set up properly? A lot of times, a lot of times. And, you know, when we say PDP, I kind of generalize that. There's, you know, the there's the front end where the customer sees, but then there's that back end where the robot sees. And That's so right. we put them both together. So there might be something, when you look at a PDP, it might look fantastic to everybody on the planet. But when we look at the back end of it and we start checking that source, there is a lot of things missing and it could be completely on the wrong shelf Got that it. has zero volume to it. That mm. no one, not, there's not a customer on the planet that's really trying to navigate and find and discover that product. And if it's not, it's just like in store. If it's not on the right shelf, no one's going to see it. Yeah, 100%. It's a great, it's a great metaphor to connect it that yeah. way. Uh, is there a big difference in marketplace uh, PDP pages versus first party or one P pages. If someone's moved from marketplace, they have all of a sudden picked up in-store distribution. Is it a complete do-over starting process not, or it is an easy evolution or how's that work? It's a, it's a fairly easy evolution in this now, not on the setup side, but as far as when it comes to the product detail page, there's just some of the back end things that need to be checked and make sure that, uh, that they're set up correctly because we've also experienced a lot, even in one piece suppliers that don't have certain things checked off. And these are very small things. Mm -hmm. uh, that are not audited or set up correctly that are literally not allowed for them to be able to show up for a delivery or in-store pickup. I mean, we discovered a lot of that and it's, it's just a small little thing that everybody's missing. They're looking at their sales, not understanding why that's not doing well, you know, it wasn't set up there because it's just, there's this little check mark hmm. that it has to be transactable. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you see the, um, the opportunity to, get better return on the advertising spend by optimizing the PDP. Cause it, apparently there's a, there's a big impact on the algorithms mm -hmm. from how the quality scores or the relevancy yeah. of that is there. And if you're looking at, if you're not understanding that piece of it, you might say, well, my retail media network's not giving me very good right. incremental ROAS or however you're trying to measure that. 
but what you're not doing is connecting it to the quality of the digital shelf, right? That's right. Yeah, you're not. You have to. Um, I mean, the the algorithm that's feeding that search for the for the media side, you know, is is connected in some capacity to the same one that's trying to deliver back an organic result, mm-hmm. you know, to the customer as well. They have to be playing in a fair space, right? And that's kind of started by Google, right? Because Google, when it's allowing sponsored ads. If it quits showing you very relevant organic content, you're not going to trust Google anymore. Same right. thing is going to happen at Walmart or Amazon or wherever else. So those things have to work together. Basically, at the end of the day, the customer, and you pointed this out in your white paper, right? You know, the customer has to have a good experience. That's right. Whether it's organic or paid. And so by those two factors, if I'm doing well on both of those spaces, then things are going to work better at the end of the day for the customer. Because there's a lot of times that we see, you know, advertising not you're not able to advertise on certain shelves because your product is not seen by the algorithm as relevant to a search query. And that's because the shelf that you put it in, set it up in is incorrect. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it can, and and it can, and it's, it's very defined and Walmart's very different than the way it is on Amazon. Right. I mean, it can be, Amazon can be a little bit more global, but Walmart's a very, very focused kind of deal, which I think, you know, a lot of people might get frustrated about that, but at the end of the day, I mean, Walmart is like, you know, an Amazon on steroids when it comes to retail. I mean, it has a greater responsibility and it has a huge trust factor from my perspective. I'm a big Walmart fan, but, uh, but I mean, so there's, there's more to it in the shopping experience for a Walmart customer and for Walmart's responsibility, uh, than, than maybe other retailers that are out there. Well, you look at how fast things change. I said this in the intro. I mean, your knowledge of this space is incredible, uh, but it seems like every quarter, at least, there's new things happening yeah. that's changing the rules, not changing the rules in a bad way, but improving mm-hmm. or new features and such. And how or how do you stay on top of it? I mean, it's such a fast-moving space. And how, how do CPG, your brand suppliers... How do they stay on top of it? Is it mainly through you to kind of get that intelligence of, hey, this has changed. Let's let's you know pivot left, pivot right. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's one of the greatest questions. I have to give all the credit to the team. I mean, I really do. You know, and it's not being cliche, but I mean, our culture, our number one value is adaptability. Uh, we believe in that. We expect that every day we come to work. I mean, it's not uh, we're. We don't feel discouraged or frustrated because we can't ever get the job done, you know, and that's really bred into our culture. And it's a very different than I think than a lot of other industries, uh, you know, that we don't have like this, this one core responsibility and that's, and that's okay. Like we allow ourselves to continually build this plane as we're going. And over time, we just, we, you know, we, we also do a good job of listening and we listen to Walmart. And so I've seen so many instances, especially over the last few years, it's probably a little bit different now, but in the beginning with the digital omni-channel shopping experience, you'd see Doug McMillan say something about that, you know, on, on media, you know, you see a quote, omni-channel is just floating around and people are like, yeah, omni-channel, you know, this and that. But I, we were actually like, what is he actually saying right there? And then we, then I'd start studying a little bit more and watching more on social media, LinkedIn and like investigating, what is this thing? And then you'd see the pickup towers. Well, that's interesting. And I put it together. That's some pretty prime real estate to put into a Walmart store, a massive pickup tower. Like Walmart doesn't really just throw things out there. You know, Mm -hmm. they have a serious intent. Then you start seeing the pickup lanes. So it's, it's our ability as a team to see the, to 
believe in the intangibles, have the adaptability, and to then build products and services that meet those things. Well, you're describing an attribute about this power of observation that is really a right brain creative core trait. Because you, mm. if you're a, if you're a photojournalist, you're looking for things that other people don't see, mm. and that being in the moment. And I would think that this space to be successful is a very left brain, you know, almost an accounting based attention to mm -hmm. detail in some ways, but in other ways, it's the power of observation that a creative right brain could really thrive in. So good. what is the profile of what of the person you think would be successful? You describe some really good value traits about sure. patience and listening, but but what are the what's the kind of typical profile that would make a person or help a person be successful if they're working in this in this particular space? Yeah, I think that when we some of the folks I've seen to join our team that have been, you know, very fruitful in this um, are coming at it with an, an excitement approach to uh, to contribute significantly, you know, it's, they don't come to it as just a job and a piece of employment necessarily. They're coming in to, to kind of create and spearhead change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, it doesn't happen every single time, but funny enough our culture and like the more folks that we keep adding, it just kind of keeps doing that. We've grown quite a bit in the last 12 months, 18 months. And I mean, I look around these people are all just, you know, they're just legitimately figuring things out on a meeting by meeting by phone call basis. And it's just the most invigorating thing that I've ever seen. And, and so I think that like, like even on your white or your yeah. last podcast to listen to, I mean, I love that about this leadership change that's happening. I mean, it, and, and at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's not something special we've done. It's, and it's not driven by just our idea. It's driven by this culture of technological advances. And a long time ago, we realized like, there's no way we can keep up the technology, but what can we keep, what does all this technology need in order to be successful? And I don't care if it's the smartest AI robot in the world or whatever it might be. It needs the content. It needs that human creation that can feed it this food in order for it to operate correctly. So I think as a brand, it's like, what's this core? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's being flown in by a drone or or, or zip line to your house. It doesn't matter it, that everything needs that information. And so that's what you can do is in, and then if as a brand, how do you be better than your competitors? Like if you could build a team that is like legitimately building the library of Congress for this particular product and with images and video and attributes and, and, and research and all this stuff that I know that they, a lot of times they already do their science behind the things that they're doing. How do you get all that information into a spot that can then be distributed? The distribution of all this stuff is the hard, is the really kind of chaotic part, but the, the central core right in that story, that's where the magic happens to these, to these folks. Like, how do you make that process perfect? And it's hard to do that. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, it's interesting. If you're the type of person that probably uh, that has to put together a gas grill and and you never want to look at the, you just I got this and throw the instructions <laughs> yeah. away. You probably wouldn't do well in this space. Right. But uh, <laughs> but 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 you'd also have to be one that can be patient and follow the instructions. But then when things don't look right, making those adjustments real time and have mm -hmm. that agility to figure the problem solving ends out of it. Because I'm I'm sure. Half the time you're solving problems, yeah. not just following directions on the perfect formula for a, a site. That's right. Right? I mean, it's the yeah. problem solving too. You have to figure it out. It's almost like the perfect person, Andy, would be, who, who are the people that are writing the encyclopedias, like yeah. the dictionaries? I mean, like they're, they or have love, to have an ambition. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, they, or someone I like that spend their free time uh, updating Wikipedia pages where yes. it's a volunteer thing. Boom. And, but they care about the content subject so much that they're willing to research and put that extra effort in. So it's perfect. Yeah. And it sounds like that's the kind of person yeah. that, that this looks or even, for. Or even like the YouTubers that just that, that are kind of geeking out on something they love. They, they have to have that passion to it. And they just do it because they want people to know. Right. And there's a lot. And when you think about that YouTube landscape, there's actually a lot of people out there that are doing that. So finally bringing that into the mix, I think is, would be powerful. I'm now beginning to understand more why you're in this space with the background you have as a photojournalist yeah. creative, because if they're, uh, photojournalists, my experience has been never really hundred percent satisfied. True. Always see it could be a little better and yep. like the futz with it and levels that I would never yep. be able to discern mm -hmm. that that wasn't color graded properly and you, you can pick it up immediately. Yep. And so it's seeing that uh, because I'm sure algor algorithms will see it and you oh, know, yeah. in, in this kind of context. It's a good point. Um, um, I've never thought about myself so much like that, Andy. <laughs> I'm glad we're having this talk. You're going to feel so much better I after am. today. I, I tell do. You. I feel normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's shift to the future. Um, you know, how do you see the space evolving? You know, machine learning, AI, we already kind of talked about that's probably not going to put uh, this industry out of business mm -hmm. in terms of people doing this work. But are there any other big things that might be coming that you see? Uh, of course, you know, no one has a crystal ball, but right. yeah. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I'm most excited, like, so you have a lot of front end technological advances, whether it's the pickup lanes and, you know, and we keep seeing, you know, more advanced pickup lanes coming in where it's making it easier on the customer to get in and out to delivery, to drones, autonomous vehicles, all that stuff, which by the way, nobody believed five years ago, just oh, yeah, FYI, didn't exist, right? Yeah. Um, it's those intangibles that we went for and we could see that they're serious about it but anyway. So I think that the front end is, is, you know, there'll still be advances there, but what I'm most excited about is the back end type of stuff. So my analogy is, is like, I like to eat kind of more vegan. I do eat mm -hmm. eggs and, and, but I'd love to send to Walmart or go in mm -hmm. there and just say, Hey, I, I want eggs. I want high protein, vegan based meals. Um, you know, I do like smoothies and by the way, I don't want any sugar added and I don't want this and that and this. And I submit that to Walmart. The algorithms take it and they robotically go pick my basket and do exactly what I need based upon the attribution models that have been inputted by the suppliers. And that's all done autonomously. And then it gets delivered to my house. Uh, that's perfect. I mean, if you're shopping for your family, you know, some are on keto diet, some yes. are plant based. And, and it's not easy to see that at shelf. Uh, without picking up it, it really extends your shopping trip. But if you could feed those attributes in, I, I get that picture. And I yeah. love that picture. Um, you know, if you look back at your entrepreneurial journey and starting a company, um, obviously you went through a decision point uh, to mm -hmm. sell. And so I'd love to yeah. hear about that decision process for you. And then anything you might want to sh share with students that are looking at, you know, should I be an entrepreneur? I'd love to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. When's the right time? Can I do it out right out of school? Or is it something I should wait for many years? Um, you kind of went in early. Yeah. So just those two, two pieces of you, what would you say to students? And, and before you get to that, how did you process that decision to sell? Because I've been through that journey yeah. myself, and it's it's not an easy decision. It's not an easy decision. I think that the number one thing is is we wanted to have the the right partner that came in, wanted to ensure that our culture stayed intact, want to make sure that our people their their ceiling got lifted up, right? Um, and 
and also that their kind of their mission was the same as ours to an extent of of just constantly moving forward and growing. And you know, we we've, we've talked to a lot of folks over the years, uh, and then you know, Essential came about, and we could really tell quickly just kind of the culture you know, symmetry that we had and, and that felt really comfortable at the end of the day, Andy, like most things, it comes down to relationship. Right. And I mean, the people felt good. The ideas felt good. The, you know, the processes did the the ability for us to continue to be free birds, you Mm -hmm. know, and doing our thing was a really big deal. Um, and you had a lot of pressure to go beyond uh, the deepness in Walmart to many other places, or they've been allowed to kind of continue to mine yeah. the expertise in this area. So we, they, they want us to continue to, to be the experts here. I That's think, great. Yeah, it, it is great. And, you know, the, the integration, though, and in understanding the outside platforms and how do you, you know, how do you know what the, what the left and right hand are doing is kind of the, the challenge, right? I mean, there's part of a bigger organization. Like there's a, there's a greater mission. There's a greater vision uh, for all, market, all these top marketplaces across the globe, which is not something that we were in the middle of doing. But making sure that we understand that, how do we fit into that puzzle piece to be a contributor for that overall mission? You know, it's not necessarily it's a challenge. It's just a lot. There's there's a lot more to consider and to and you have to. My opinion on it is you have to be active in that. You have to be contributing to that. Uh, you know, and you got to be positive. here. I mean, yeah. I think you got to be here and, and connect up there. I just exactly. that's why you know I've kind of focused in this market. So uh, the student question, entrepreneurs, yeah, yeah. yeah t- talk to me about that. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, my message for an entrepreneurial lifestyle, you know, is it's like it to me, it's not a position necessarily. Right. I think that you have to be a little bit cautious and have something beat in your heart uh, because it is ultimately at the end of the day, it's a pretty, pretty significant sacrifice. You know, I mean, I think you and I could probably sit back and have have a lot of stories about that. But, you know, will your family be impacted? Absolutely. Will your finances be impacted? Absolutely. Will your health be impacted? Absolutely. Will your time? All those things. I mean, every it takes everything that you have. And if you're willing to put everything you got in it and go for it. And by the way, if the words no don't discourage you, but they, I mean, they encourage you to continue to push forward, then that's probably a good pathway for you. Yeah, it, you have to be resilient. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't feel like I had to sacrifice on the family front, but what I did have to sacrifice to not have to sacrifice there was I didn't play golf like I yeah. wanted to. I just couldn't, you know, because you have to, yeah. you know, be focused in a lot of other hobbies and stuff. I had to set aside to, to make it work through that season mm-hmm. where it's all in. Yeah. And it, it couldn't be a side hustle for me. It had to be, you know, full on commitment, which is that's the same for your journey. Now, speaking of, of side hustles, so we're here in a very unusual place for me to record. First time I've been here in your studio. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your plans are for this. Uh, for those that uh, might be just in audio, I'm sitting in a very cool spot in Pinnacle that is a uh, looks like a something being born yeah. uh, into <laughs> yeah. a very cool uh podcast video yeah. uh, production spot. And I know this, this is early stages for you and what you're doing, but just, mm-hmm. you know, tell me about it. Yeah, I appreciate it. So it's, it's podcastvideos.com and its intention is, is really to, to kind of provide a turnkey solution, you know, for this wonderful medium that has been created for podcasts and videos slash, you know, podcast videos to, for an individual organizations, nonprofits, and then companies to come in and be able to cut these things 
in a very effective and efficient way, reasonable cost. You know, we can do the the whole economics of scale to it. Uh, having multiple scenes eventually. We just have this one scene right here. It's an incubator, right? Mm -hmm. That's why sometimes I'm like, Andy, don't look too closely because there's a lot of imperfections. But that's where the fun is. Yeah, it's I know a starting you love point, it. though. I love hey, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a nerd that way. I've yeah. done loads of these, and I saw your equipment, the Sure mic, the Roadcaster, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this guy yeah, absolutely we, knows what he's doing. We got that. We yeah. got that. And, you know, what's been fun about this, like, it's it's been like a little, you know, like a Lego set, man. I mean, because yeah. we, we've done we've redone this particular table about five or six times. You know how how do the cameras line up? You know, there was one time we had cameras right in front. I had to like look around to see. It, yeah, you know, yeah. there's so much you learn so in this craft. It, yeah. There's a lot to learn if you're just starting out, or you're a thought leader, or you want to, you know, produce something. I'd yeah. suggest stopping by here yeah, because you'll you. shortcut thousands of dollars of investment yes. and hours of learning and trial and error by at least starting here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So there you go. Free plug for Thanks, man. Your time, I appreciate uh, that. that. Uh, but Eric, it's lovely to see <laughs> hey, you. You, know, you ought to start a retail media network on your podcast channel. Ain't <laughs> I'll start a show about it. I'll do okay, interviews, okay, but gotcha. no, no, I'm not going to start. <laughs> You're not going to start a network. No, I'm, not, I'm not getting back at anything that looks like a grind of work. Uh, I'm trying to avoid work. Gotcha, but, brother. Uh, yeah, boy, I followed your journey. I've always wanted Thank to sit you. down and talk to you about it. Um, I love what you're doing. I understand now why uh, White Spider focuses in what you do, uh, mm -hmm. because it is very complex. You've got to be here. It's a hands-on keyboard and hand-in-hand -hand relationship world. Yep. And so, yep. um, I, and I think for me, it's really important for our listeners to understand, especially coming from a media or advertising space, that you've got to look at these channels more than just a media channel. It's yep. also a media and digital shelf and commercial channel, and they mm -hmm. all are really connected like a three-legged stool. Exactly. And so love what you're doing, and thanks, thanks for uh, being on the show. Hey, it's been an honor to chat with you. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Okay, so something cool for our listeners, too. Uh, Eric just told me that if you go to podcastvideos.com and sign up for a session to do recording and you use the coupon code BIGQUEST, you'll get a 10% discount on your first session, which is already cheap as chips, and so they'll probably end up owing you money. But it is a good deal, and I highly recommend it. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Wilton College original production. 